Welcome to GRE Snacks, snackable episodes about the GRE exam and graduate school admissions. I'm Tyler, the founder of Achievable. We have an affordable $199 GRE course that includes everything you need to ace your GRE. Full textbook, tons of GRE questions backed by our memory-enhancing algorithm, and full-length practice exams. You can try us out for free at achievable.me, and if you like it, the code CODCAST will get you 10% off. And also, if you have a question or topic that you'd like us to discuss in a future episode, you can contact me at tyler.achievable.me with the subject line podcast topic. Now, let's get started. So today, and I am going to try and do this correctly, uh, we have Irfan Gula on the show with us. Did I get that right? Uh, Irfan Gula, but close enough. It's, you were the first person to butcher it. Man. All right. Irfan Gula. And he is the founder of GRE Compass. So do you want to just give a little intro about yourself? Uh, sure. First off, thanks for having me. Um, so uh, I've been a GRE tutor for about 15 years. Uh, I scored a perfect exam on the GRE, and um, I'm sole author of uh, McGraw-Hill's Guide to the GRE, which has been out since 2013 and sold about 100,000 copies. I have a lot of experience with test takers sort of across the range of scores, you know, working with people who start at, you know, like a 150 quant, 150 verbal, all the way up to people who are already in the 160s and are shooting for upper echelon scores. Um, And yeah, great. Excited to be here. Yeah. Happy to have you on the show and, and thanks for coming on. So the topic that you wanted to discuss today was common misconceptions about the GRE. So, I mean, take it away, because I feel like that, that could be a number <laughs> of different things. Yeah, so it's a pretty broad topic. Um, what I had in particularly in mind is sort of this idea that a lot of people go into their studying with, which is that the GRE is largely kind of a memorization-based exam, whereby if you want to do well on the quant section, you have to go relearn all the core quant content, memorize a bunch of rules. You want to do well on text completion, you have to go memorize, you know, every word in the dictionary, et cetera. Now, what I mean by the misconception here, you know, if you've done any studying, of course, you do need to relearn the core quant content. There's really no way around having a base in, um, you know, such a high school math and, you know, high school algebra and geometry. The big misconception mm-hmm. there, though, is coming at the quant from the lens that it's a math section and a math test, when in reality, it's testing your quantitative reasoning ability. So the big distinction there is to understand what the test makers fundamentally are concerned with is not simply, hey, do you remember exponent rules? Do you remember you know, the rate time bits of formula? But instead, can you reason flexibly within a quantitative context? And so a big mm-hmm. sort of consequence of this misconception is when people study they think okay again right it's just like it's a math test when i took math tests in school i just learned 20 formulas and just spit them out on the exam and and what they end up doing as a result is what i call pigeonholing questions when by pigeonholing questions what i mean is students will look at a question and say okay this is a quote-unquote rate question it's a quote-unquote exponent question and then just try to approach it in a very rigid way instead of actually reasoning through the situation in a way that the test makers reward what's important to understand the test makers spend a lot of time and money constructing questions in such a way that reward certain skills so it's not you know i i say this to somebody who has experience writing questions myself so when mm-hmm. people at test prep companies write questions, they might get paid $50 per question, something along those lines. When ETS writes these questions, they're spending thousands of dollars per question. That money they're spending largely goes into making sure that they're constructing them in such a way that really reflects the skills that they're concerned with. All right, so mm-hmm. that misconception that's just simply a math exam, um, 
instead of a, a reason and, and quantum particulars have sort of a reasoning section is really important that also manifests itself in quantum comparison in particular uh one thing i find there very often is you know students don't really modify their approach <laughs> they'll like they'll go to quantum comparison think it's very similar discrete it's just discrete quantum you know, like your standard multiple choice questions and they'll you know just again try to just do a bunch of math a bunch of calculations etc when in reality these questions are constructed to take around 90 seconds. So they should actually take a lot less time mm -hmm. than your general multiple choice questions. And if you don't come at them from the right reasoning angle using the proper framework, then they're gonna take longer, you're gonna introduce inefficiencies, and then you know things just sort of cascade negatively from there. So- Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say, that's something that um, we talked about actually uh, earlier in, the, in sort of our, our season of the podcast with, with Charles was what he calls engineer's disease, but it's just the idea that in quant, it's like, I know how to solve this. Uh -huh. Yes, but do you know how to solve it in 90 seconds, right? Like, and right. usually there's some other method that's not just like directly solving the problem with with math that is what the test taker envisioned you solving it with, right? Like they envisioned you using some kind of like either reasoning or logical trick to like figure out the answer in much less time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it the idea is if you have choices, they're there for a reason. I mean, they are available to give you alternate strategies to get to the goal. And a lot of people simply don't leverage that. I mean, you know, a lot of times when I start working with somebody, I'll notice, you know, I'll, I'll give them a few questions. And, you know, just a very basic question, I'll ask them, hey, did you look at the choices? And, you know, very often the answer is no. They just come at it from the angle of, okay, like this is a test, like what I took in high school, where I have to show my worth, how I got to the answer, et cetera. No, all that matters is just you know, essentially circle the correct answer. Now, you know, it is worth noting, ETS, of course, is, they do construct questions to reward, you know, a, a sort of flexible mindset, all to take, being able to identify and take different post short questions. At the same time, sometimes, you know, they really do want to see, like, put you in a position where you're going to have to exercise some pretty strong quantum muscles. They do that with numeric entry, in my opinion, right? Numeric entry, there aren't choices. A lot of times you are going to be forced to, I mean, you still have to be flexible and efficient, but in the absence of choices, it, things will become more inherently more challenging. You know, there are situations where sometimes, you know, having that stronger quant foundation is rewarded. Uh, but yeah, you know, the mm -hmm. way Charles, like you said, Brandon, I, you said engineer, engineer's disease. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think mean, that, that's a, a good uh, way of conceptualizing it for sure. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's interesting. A lot of times I will get people who have a strong base and, the math and it actually does more harm than good because they're just they're used to just finding the sort of brute force approach to getting to the answer when that's not really the best way of going about it um it's actually right you know it, it does bring up uh it's sort of important distinction that i like to emphasize to students which is what i call top down thinking versus bottom up thinking and we can think of bottom-up okay. thinking. I mean, right, you guys are, you do a lot of computer programming, so, right? Bottom-up thinking is essentially what computers do, where they'll just, like, do trial and error, trial and error, arrive at the proper solution. Whereas top-down thinking is, you know, being goal-oriented, letting, you're sort of using executive function, letting the goals dictate the subsequent steps you take. And for so many people, they're just accustomed to bottom-up thinking that they'll see a math question, they'll just start doing trial and error, let me do this, let me do that, see what happens, and that's when you start introducing inefficiencies. Um, and that's one of the biggest uh, sort of shifts in mindset that, in my opinion, is required to maximize your efficiency on the plot question. Yeah, very cool. And also, it I mean, that's such a good example of bottom-up versus top-down. Because, I mean, bottom-up, for instance, like, computers are fantastic at chess because it's just bottom-up. It's like you have this situation, 
there's, I don't know, 27 million different things that could <laughs> happen from here on out, like figure out the best one versus right. like self-driving cars are still, you know, I remember in 2015, <laughs> self-driving cars were coming out by 2018 and it's 2022 and they are not really self-driving. Right. Exactly. Of, <laughs> the top down is a lot harder. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It makes a lot of sense. For, for computers, so, right. But, but that, that's where, I mean, like, that's where humans won't be replaced by computers anytime soon, necessarily in that capacity of being able to use executive functioning in that way. So like, you know, that's a lot, that's a skill that we all reward for the skill that the exam is, does reward as well. Yeah. And a skill the exam targets for sure. Yeah. So that's the first misconception. What's, what's your second one? Yeah. So talking about verbal, uh, the big misconception there is with text completion, sentence equivalents in particular, thinking that it's largely a matter of vocabulary. Um, so to expand on that, basically, the you know I, I, I imagine most of the people listening to this podcast are maybe not be aware of this, but the GRE did change in 2011. In 2011, it had some different question types, different scoring, et cetera. One really important shift, they removed analogies and antonyms from the exam. So prior to 2011, there were antonyms and analogies. And the idea is basically... If you really want to just measure somebody's vocabulary ability, in the absence of saying, you know, write out a definition, the best way of doing so is antonyms, right? Because with antonyms, mm-hmm. like, okay, like, either you know the word, or you don't, if you don't know the word, you're not going to be able to find an antonym, there's no way around that. So there was a point at which, yes, they were explicitly concerned on some level solely with your base and academic vocabulary. Um, but they did change the two question types, right? So now we have text and sentence equivalents. And what's really important to emphasize with these questions is, why did they make the change, right? They made the change because, you know, they realized, well, look, that's brute vocab knowledge is only important to a certain extent, right? Ultimately, of course, we all have dictionaries, et cetera. What they care more about is your ability to exercise close contextual reading and to be able to infer the author's intended meaning within a text. So mm-hmm. the point there being a lot of people will come at these vocab, well, the quote unquote vocab questions uh, from the angle of, okay, let me go memorize, you know, the 2000 most commonly tested words and I'll be good to go. And in doing so, they neglect ever developing a good methodology and how to actually approach the sentence. And so very often, you know, what I'll see is somebody will have memorized all the words, but will do an even like relatively straightforward text with your question and a lot of difficulty because they don't actually know how to decipher the sentence. So the real mm-hmm. idea here is, okay, yes, if you don't have a good base in academic vocabulary, you do want to beef that up. There, that's you know, inarguable, but that is, that's not going to be necessary and sufficient to see a good score on textbook and equivalents. More important, you need to make sure that you're deciphering the sentence correctly. That again, think about things from the perspective of the test makers. Mm-hmm. They write these sentences in a way that they're logically decipherable, that you could identify words that create logical relationships and consequently sort of deconstruct the sentence or the paragraph accordingly. They construct them in such a way you want to make sure that you're able to look at the sentences from that framework. If you're not doing that, you can know all the vocab in the world that's not going to make a difference. You're going to fall for a lot of traps. So, mm-hmm. you know, where people allocate their time in terms of studying for these question types, you know, I think that's a consequence of the conception that it is largely a matter of vocabulary. Um, and sort of also an extension of that, in my opinion, studying these vocab lists is also of limited use. I mean, it's helpful, but there is no, like ETS doesn't publish a list of a thousand words, right? Like any, you know, where these words come from, we all develop them just based off of previously published materials, 
And, you know, it's useful to some right. extent, right? Yeah, it is useful, but it's also, you know, you're learning words that actually don't often get used in the real word, world. And, right. you know, as much as it's nice to know what didactic means, like, I don't actually <laughs> think I'm ever going to put that in an email, right? And, right? and I work in, you know, I'm in tech, technically, um, and worked in tech in the past, and I've never seen language like that, right? Like, it's so it's, it, it there is sort of a, I think for me, it's like, Obviously, like, not everything you study for on the GRE is going to be used in real life, and that's fine. That's part of the thing. But it's more, I think you'll get more mileage out of learning how to break apart sentences. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Than exactly. you would from yeah. vocab. Yeah, exactly. And right, that, that touches on, you know, just the importance of when you're studying, making sure you're doing so in a way that's generalizable, right? So instead of trying to say, mm-hmm. okay, let me go, like, memorize this, this random word, that random word, hope it shows up on the example. Okay, what about this overall sentence could have positioned me to get to the right answer even had I not known every single word, right? And, and you know, developing that ability will serve you a lot better on the real thing. I also, you know, going back to, I mean, this is partly misconceptions, but I guess we're going to some other territory here, but um, I do think it's important when it comes to trying to develop that basic academic vocabulary I suggest that students do academic reading. So what I really suggest is, uh, if you've heard of the New York Review of Books, um, you know, it's just mm-hmm. a, a period, it's a periodical that does, like, where academics write reviews of academic books. And it's very similar in tone, style, vocabulary to what's on the real thing. And, you know, but I tell students, read a couple articles from there every day, memorize the words you don't know, that'll serve you in a lot of ways more, a lot better than just and out of context memorizing random words. Right. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And it, it gets you used to reading these like academic style uh-huh. uh, paragraphs, which is helpful for reading comp, especially. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the reading comp is, I think it's, it's pretty tough on the GRE. I mean, you know, I do GRE and GMAN. I find the GRE reading comp for most people is tougher. I mean, a lot of, you know, a lot of it is from the humanities, which many people, especially if you're like applying to quant oriented programs you would not be as familiar with or have as much um, exposure to. So, you know, a periodical publication like that can help a lot in getting you just more acclimated to that kind of writing. Yeah, very cool. Do you have any other misconceptions you want to talk about today? Um, we're going to touch on this, I think, later. Uh, but I do, you know, one other high-level misconception is it's sort of a logical fallacy of equating the perceived difficulty of a topic with its importance. So in other words, a lot of times when people get into their studying, they'll notice, oh, wait a minute, I'm having a lot of trouble on probability. I'm having a lot of trouble on rates. Let me go devote all my time to those topics. I want to make sure I really master those. But the fact is, yes, they might stand out disproportionately in your mind, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're tested that heavily. So it's really you know, this mm-hmm. misconception that it seems difficult, therefore it's important, when the reality is a lot of the basics – I mean, you know, like core arithmetic, core algebra matter a lot more. Developing a good, strong foundation right. there will go a lot further in getting to a high score than, you know, spending 20 or 30 hours memorizing every possible variation of combinatorics you might see on the exam. Yeah, exactly. That makes a ton of sense. Well, thanks. This has been GRE Snacks, hosted by Tyler from Achievable. You can try Achievable's GRE course for free at Achievable.me, and the code podcast gets you 10% off at checkout.